Hello, everyone, and welcome to Debate Night with Brody and Hunter. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or one of the audio platforms, or if you're joining us here live on YouTube. We really appreciate each and every one of you. We're testing yet again another new format. Um, we'll explain My that audio in a second. should be good, though. My yes. audio should be good. Last week, I sounded like I was talking out of a freezer, but I think we should be solid now. Yeah, he, he selected the wrong mic on, on Skype. He's <laughs> a, virtual, virtual debate night just brings on a whole new set of challenges. Yeah. But I think we've got it figured out. First off, though, I got to compliment that shirt. If hey, our audio I, listeners might not be seeing this, actually, they're definitely not seeing this, but that is a loud shirt, and I'm here I, for it. I call it my Easter egg polo. Uh, I, I thought it might have been fitting for the debate night tonight, you know, just kind of dress up a little bit. Uh, we'll see. I have a poll out on my Instagram right now. Um, early signs, people are, are on the fence. So we'll see, uh, we'll see how it works out. But talking about social media as well, if you haven't seen already, we have created a Twitter account for this podcast. It is at Debate Night Pod. So if you want, go over to Twitter. If you have that, follow us on Twitter, and uh, we'll be posting notifications on you know upcoming episodes, potential topics, and uh, posting maybe some clips and stuff on there as well. Yeah, and if you are tuning in live and you want to be a part of the live call-in section, we're happy to be bringing that back. I'm going to walk you through the process really quick here. Basically, we're going to be doing it through Discord tonight, so we're going to be testing yet another one. Discord makes it a lot easier on our end. Um, and there's also been some preconceived notions about Discord that uh, I don't know where they were coming from, but Discord, our Discord server, it's discord.gg slash foundationdiscgolf. It's completely free to join. Um, it's a great place if you want to pop in, talk with a bunch of disc golf fans about everything going on in the disc golf world. There's all kinds of chats within there, grip locked, debate night chat, everything from hot takes to memes to live tournament chats. It's a great place to consume all things disc golf. Um, but specifically for tonight's show, if you're tuning in live, go in there. As soon as you join, if you're a new member, you do have to react within the roles channel with a check mark. And then if you scroll down under the podcast, you should see Debate Night Live, which Brody and I are in, and you should see Debate Night Green Room. If you have a topic that you want to bring up, go ahead and jump in the Debate Night Green Room, and what will happen is once we start the call-in section, I'll be randomly dragging some of you in. You'll be talking here live on the show to both Brody and myself. You can bring up your topic, and we can debate with you that way. I think it's going to work really well um, if you're interested in doing so and if you're listening on audio and you just want to be a part of a sick community i think discord is a little bit of an untapped potential there there's a lot going on within the discord that you can really find people who love disc golf and might also love the video games that you're into or all sorts of other stuff but with that yeah, the said, gaming start the gaming's starting to get a little a little hyped up over there um so I think I think it's an. I mean, we got other things on there. People talking UFC. People talking football. I know the uh, LeBron Jordan debate gets brought up like once every week. I, uh, I try and, to I try to pop in the the basketball chat and just start <laughs> that up like once a month. Yeah, so uh, it's an awesome place, um, especially like if you're just like bored and you just want to chat with some people instead of going on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, where it can get out of hand. These are all people that support foundation disc golf and so you have some kind of unity there but we're going to jump into the topics because honestly we have live call-ins coming so we need some time for that and i've got a lot of stuff to say the first one being 
what's the situation with the cart, right? I uh, I just got a cart. Well, I ha I've had it for quite some time, and there was always this stigma of like, oh, don't don't use a cart, don't use a cart. And I was like, all right, I'll just carry my bag. I'll just carry it like a freaking beast and just. Okay, coming after COVID though, and like playing six holes and feeling like I want to keel over and die, I was like, I might have to try this cart thing out. I went and played a decently long course. It was about 10,000 plus feet. Played it back-to-back -back rounds and noticed a considerable difference in my energy level and just like my back soreness, if that's a thing. And... I'm on the fence of whether I'd ever use it in a tournament. And my big thing too is I fly to pretty much all my tournaments. I can't really travel with a cart. But if it was an option, I'm on the fence right now. But when it comes to practice, you better believe I'm using a cart. What the heck? Why would I not? So I've always been team anti-cart, 100%. I am I'm hardcore bag for one reason – and I just think carts look stupid. That's it. That's my only reason. I just, I don't like the look of the cart. So maybe, maybe it's just the design <laughs> of the cart currently. Does it look like we're carrying like uh it's like that nerdy kid in school with the roller backpack? Is I that mean, what maybe, we look like? Maybe. I mean, I, I never hated a rolly backpack kid. Uh, the, the roller backpack. That's worse than the car. Okay. Looks wise, maybe, but those kids were geniuses that I was on a, Oh, we yeah, won't those even get into that. Always, those were always the most I popular always made kids friends in with school. Them. I always made friends with them because they were hilarious and they were the smartest kids. <laughs> but regardless of that, I don't, there's just something about the look of it. I think it's just because no pros do it. Like I think if I got into disc golf and the top pros were all carrying carts, I might feel different. You know what I mean? You would jump on the cart wagon? I might have, but it's too late now. It's too late. All the top pros could start. My opinion's already set in stone. But it's like why – if you're practicing, right, and your goal is to – uh, get as much efficient practice in and having a cart will allow you to do that i, like, I why, get the why are you not doing it i get the like, benefit why are you doing it i get i definitely see where it's easier just to pull something behind you but there's also you also have to understand the courses around me which will soon be the courses around you yeah most of them are like you're hiking and if you if you're bringing a cart, I'm pretty sure it's worse than if you're carrying yes. a backpack. It is. I would agree. It is cart. Like certain courses are very cart dependent. Uh, the the local disc golf group that I'm in down here, when we go and play, when someone goes and plays a new course, one of the first questions always is, "Is it good for a cart?" Yeah. So I, I completely understand that. It makes sense. If it is good for a cart, though, like, and my whole thought too is like if something comes out to where like the, the segue, right? If there's some sort of segue for disc golf, you better believe I'm using that. What the heck? I can play my, like, cause when I was practicing for golf, walking 18 holes would take a long time mm -hmm. just to walk, not even to play, just to walk 18 holes takes a long time, but you can get around 18 holes in on a golf cart very quickly. So if you're trying to be efficient with your time, uh, to me, it makes sense. So, well, I think I, in a tournament, I'm curious. I, I'm pro cart now. In I'm a tournament, just get a caddy. Yeah, I. The only thing I don't like is trying to grab for whatever reason. Trying to grab. I mean, you you saw this firsthand when you were my caddy. Oh, trying I to hate get this out. This out. I hate that. I hate that trash. Yeah. 
Yeah. I don't know why, but I hate it. Well, it's because so. all the bags currently on the market right now are designed to be pulled from the ground. So they don't have a lot of like give when you're reaching yeah. in, especially on the side. So once it's on someone's back, you got to take it's a few over. discs out. Yeah. It's over. game over with that. All right. We're going to move on. Uh, the next thing I want to bring up is uh, some stuff from – actually, we're going to go back a little bit. We're going to bring up some stuff from the previous podcast. I read some comments. Apparently, there have been a couple major league pitchers. One notable, I can't remember his name, but he was ambidextrous and would throw left-handed and right-handed. So I stand corrected there. Apologies. I still think it's an an anomaly, and I don't think it's going to be something that you'll see in disc golf. Um, Chocolate is candy. I have... Gone full circle. I'm back. Wait, whoa, the, whoa. I'm I am on the chocolate is candy. What what changed there? That's news to me. Cocoa? Yeah. Like the, the beans? Yeah. That's not candy. Correct. That's what I was saying. Dark chocolate, like ninety percent cocoa. They add they they add milk. They 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 do some stuff. They probably add some sugar. Yeah, lots of shake to make the chocolate. I am now on team. Candy, chocolate, ca- chocolate is candy. That's what I was arguing last week. I'm. That's where I'm at now. All right. Um, Tootsie Rolls, however, not chocolate. Yeah, no, that's chocolate-flavored taffy. taffy. Yeah, yeah, more yeah. the taffy. I was wrong there. And then the last thing is, you were right. You got you called the Jake Paul fight. Um, so I pretty much got dominated did last you see, week with all my takes. Did you pretty see much he, every take. he tweeted and said, most recent announcement, I'm now a retired boxer. Uh, was I that just like he, a joke? He, What's I, going on there? I think, I think the way, if you look at the end of his fight against Woodley versus the end of his fight with everyone else, obviously he didn't knock out Woodley. Yeah, uh, and he took some big shots from Woodley, but his demeanor after winning, because that was the thing in all those fights. He won, mm-hmm. but his demeanor after winning this fight was completely different than his demeanor after winning those previous fights. I think he saw how uh, how much more difficult it is going against someone that has a little bit of striking knowledge, that has a little bit of power, and again, still someone that's undersized. Like Woody, Woodley in that fight was probably 12, 13 pounds lighter than Paul. Um, and, you know, Tommy Fury was on that card, and I think there was a he looked reason awful. for it. He looked awful. He looked so he bad. Looked, he looked really bad, but but I don't, I don't know if Jake looked at that and goes, I want to take that fight. Because Tommy Fury, I believe, is the same weight class as Jake Paul. That's just not a money fight. It's not, it's not like, I'm not. I'm not getting excited fight. for that. Well, you also probably don't know that he was on um, Love Island. Or I, whatever I heard it that. Was. Yeah. Okay. You know. But it was okay. the UK so version, right? So he's pretty big. It's the same thing with like KSI. Yeah. Is there there's, might be a lot of people over in the States that don't really think or know who KSI is, but they're massive in Europe. Um, my thing is if he does end up kind of going that retiring route or like sitting back, not doing anything, I think the reason simply was. He is what we talked about. He finally got to like a level of where someone could beat him. And like if he goes and fights a Tommy Fury that no one has, like Fury hasn't beaten anyone good. 
if he goes and fights someone like Tommy Fury and loses, yeah, then it's really bad. Yeah, there's only like there's the, the people that he needs to fight to where if he loses, he still like comes out on top a little bit. I don't think he wants to fight those people. Yeah. So I think he's I think he's in a position now where it's like, okay, he's going up in difficulty. That's what he's been continu- continuing to do. But now if he goes up in difficulty again, I think he I don't think he wants to One take thing that. I thought was interesting It'll too. Be interesting. One thing I thought was interesting too was immediately after the fight when Woodley was asking for a rematch and Jake Paul you could tell was not confident. Like it almost like it was almost yeah. like he felt like his his win was a fluke. Because he was like, at first he just immediately shut it down, and then eventually he came around to the like, if you get the tattoo, we'll do it type thing. But yeah, I mean, it's, Jake's it was a better boxer than Woodley. Yeah, yeah. Jake's a better boxer in the but sense Woodley, of the sport I think, of boxing more and scoring. Knockout, knockout power. Yes. If Woodley would have called him one or two Woodley, more, Jake hit Woodley with his best stuff. Yeah. Woodley got hit multiple times hard and kept coming forward. Where the previous guys, Jake would hit him like that and they would drop. So, um, and you could see Jake was also completely gassed. Yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. We'll see how it plays out. Definitely um, interesting. But moving back, moving back to disc golf, we're going to talk a little bit about the two meter rule real quick. Mm. Me and you, I believe, both agree on this. I think, night, like you said earlier, 99% of disc golfers probably agree on this. This might be a good call in if you disagree with me and Hunter here. The two-meter rule is potentially the worst rule. As of right now, the two-meter rule is, I would say, the worst rule in the PDGA handbook. It, that might change once they allow this to <laughs> not uh, this to not be in the basket to still count as being in. Uh, but for right now, that the two-meter rule is the worst rule. It, it's got to be up there. I think. I think what the main thing we're seeing here is it. It shows all the way back to our roots, like. Disc golf clearly was the grassroots of disc golf were from California, and a lot of the courses out there, um, it was a preventative met- uh, measure, right? Like the yeah, the trees are lower. Players could have just thrown up and over, and they're like to prevent that. We just if your disc is two meters up in the tree, you get a penalty stroke. What I don't like about it, and I'm assuming this is the same thing you don't like, is it's just the luck of the draw. It's not like yes. clear OB where it's like clearly if I mess up and throw my disc past that line, I'm out of bounds. I deserve a penalty stroke. This is like I throw a perfectly good shot. It just sticks up in the tree. I get a penalty stroke. Then you throw a perfectly good shot. It hits the same tree, falls down, and you're parked. Mm-hmm. And now I have a yeah. three, you have a two. That makes the, no sense. I would say the majority of the time, too, that you're hitting trees is not on purpose. Yeah. You're There's very – very few holes or hopefully less and less holes where the best play is to just throw something up and try to hit it a tree and then plinko down. I think we're starting to see course design go away from that. Yeah. And that's that's a good thing. Yeah. Cuz that also takes out some of the luck. If that's your but if that's your course design, which that's what originally it was, nowadays that's just bad course design. Yeah. So if the 2 and meter I, rule is needed, it's because of bad course design. It's my my argument. And I think also the more luck that we can take out, right, mm-hmm. the better. So same thing like around the greens. Like if you want to take out the luck, you maybe don't want to have some like concrete or rocks or something like that around the greens that if a disc lands on that, it skips a mile 
away from the basket. And if it lands just right next to it, you're good. Um, that's why if you look at like bunkers, uh, like on the preserve and stuff, like I'm fine with having bunkers on, on courses because they're large enough area to where you can see them and try to miss. If there's like just a little thing somewhere that you can't see, it's hard. It's hard to like try to miss that, that Mm. you can't see. Mm -hmm. But in regards to the tree situation two like you said, two people could throw the same exact shot into a tree one comes down one doesn't they both are penalized already from hitting a tree but someone's now getting double penalized for just the luck that their um that their disc didn't come down the tree yeah i definitely think it's a a rule that i'll i mean i guess at some point it was definitely definitely necessary for them to come up with it but it's something that the sports outgrown it just doesn't make sense anymore yes all right these and these right now these topics actually are brought to us by our viewers. These are people that went into the Discord. We have a debate night suggestion spot in the podcast area, and you guys can drop topics in there, and a lot of these are actually being pulled from them. So here's another one. He goes, I think tasteful artificial obstacles are not only good for the sport, but going to be a big part of it in the future. Think Mando Gates, Think mozzarella sticks, etc. I'll let you go first. Look, okay. Mozzarella sticks, I think, is the the biggest one for me because it, what mozzarella sticks? If you're not familiar with that, is describing at USDGC. Basically, they wanted to make putting a little bit harder, so they put in wooden poles that were about five feet tall or so, and staggered them on a side of the basket to make that the le- less favorable side, and then just wrapped it in like plastic ivory um to make it look more aesthetic and quote-unquote natural idea great idea Uh, but it it just doesn't look like part of the course and to me the farther we go down that line same thing with certain mandos certain mandos i think just look awful i think the farther we go away from stuff looking natural and looking like it belongs on the course uh because like if you look at a golf course obviously the golf course, the sand bunkers and stuff like that weren't there. They weren't, they're not quote unquote natural, but they look natural. They look like they belong there. When you see mozzarella sticks and mandos and stuff like that, it just, to me, uh, it starts, it starts edging towards, but do the bunkers look like they belong there because golf has such a long tradition to where we've seen it so much that it just feels right. Because I'm assuming at a certain point, like some, someone had to decide, like, hey, we need to put something in here to make it more difficult. Well, another good example, sticking with USDGC, is hole six at USDGC. Uh, the one of the basket placements is in a sand pit, right? Mm, yeah, the beach hole. That right? looks that looks great to me. That looks fine. Yeah, because sand mm-hmm. is a part of nature. So I think it's mm-hmm. more so like sticking within part of nature versus yeah. when you so build stuff up, it just eventually it starts to look like we're playing mini golf or like, it's, I feel like it makes the sport what look if, too much what if of it a was, joke. What if it was like a bush or a tree that Perfect. they planted? Perfect. I, that's, I'm fine with that. Okay. So you, but are you okay with, and we're talking USDGC because obviously it's coming up soon. Mm-hmm. Are you okay with like the triple mando hole with the bamboo? See, so that's that's an interesting one because 
the or the hay reason, bales or like the hay bales on 17 hay bales i'm okay with because it's like an ob marking it's the same thing to me as like signs at, on the disc golf pro tour you know what i mean and i like hay bales because again it's it's nature i think it would be yeah. different if that was like a white picket fence or something i don't know there's ways to make it look tasteful but regardless mm-hmm. the whole seven if it was implemented in a different course today i wouldn't like it but it's iconic now so mm. since it's been around for so long, it doesn't that's look that, gimmicky. That's that, like, yeah, that, that's that like the tradition thing where you've yeah. seen it so much and it's such a uh, big hole. Nate Sexton aced it and got mm-hmm. Sports Center. There's so much of that to where now you're just okay with it. Yeah. I think I think you're right in the sense of like there there has to be that fine line of like what looks good and what doesn't. Yeah. Um and I think there's also different ways of making putting more difficult than just sticking some sticks in your way. I think the easiest way of making putting more difficult is the actual terrain around the basket. Yeah. So, you know, uh, Preserve actually had a lot of really good holes. And, And even Delaware, when we just were watching Delaware, there was a couple baskets that were placed in areas where if your disc was on the right-hand side, you would have basically a putt to where if you missed, you could have a roll away, or if you airballed it, it was just going down the hill. I think potentially that's probably a better way of going about it. Um, now that is going to require moving dirt, and I don't know how many disc golf courses have done that. That is something that golf courses do every single one. Every single big golf course moves dirt, and so – It'd be cool to see, like, hey, this is just a basket in the middle of the field. How do we make this hole harder? Yeah. And you get someone to come in there and, like, okay, well, we're just going to make a, a cliff on the left side. So that way people have to throw to the right side of the basket and then they have to decide whether or not they want to run the putt. That could be real interesting. But, again, I think a lot of that's going to take time and a lot of that's going to take uh, money coming in so that – you know, these, these people that are making these courses actually can do things like that. Yeah, and a lot of it, too, is, I mean, all that has to be on private courses. There's so many courses that... Yeah, you can't that, do that in public. I do think that makes the most sense of bringing dirt in, changing the terrain. Because I think the, the mozzarella sticks, I don't like the idea of, just because I don't like the idea of there being something physical like that so close to the basket. Because, I mean, some of the holes, they're like within yeah. 10 feet. But mm-hmm. if that was a hill or like a bump that discouraged you from landing there or something like that yeah. or made it harder for your disc to stick there, <laughs> I'd feel a lot different about it. And I think it accomplishes the same thing. So like I said, I think that's a great idea, <laughs> the mozzarella sticks and what they're there for and the course design idea behind it. I think that was a great idea. I just think the way it was executed, I just think it makes our sport look too gimmicky, gimmicky and yeah. childish kind of. Uh, and, and I you think- know, realistically when you said the ace on sports center for hole seven the bamboo hole there's a chance that did the same thing to a, a non-disc golf audience seeing that hole for the first time there's a chance that that made them think the exact same thing i don't know i'm just to me yeah. that hole doesn't seem weird to me because when i see it i think of so. i mean ken climo i think it was aced it before it was even a mando throwing a spike up also, and over it and stuff i think it's also big enough yeah and it's like kind of a, a decent structure to where if it was like uh, if it was like Mulligan's whole eight, I think, or whatever, that like little dinky like triple mando that they had and they just had like a little ribbon oh, across the, the top. Yeah, it sagged down. 
Yeah, like something like that probably looks not as put together. So yeah. I think that might have something to do with it. Yeah, I think I think a lot of it too, because when I was when I was speaking about it, and you said the hay bales, and I mentioned like a white picket fence, mm. I don't feel like I would I would hate a, a picket fence either. I think a lot of it is just what looks think, good with the course. Yes, the terrain of the course, something just matching that, it to the feel of the event, the terrain of the mm-hmm. accord, the course, because. There's some courses where a white picket fence stands out like a sore thumb and would look awful. But at USDGC, mm-hmm. I don't know that that would look that bad. Now that I'm thinking yeah, about especially it. Yeah, especially if it was like consistent around the course. Yeah. If it was kind of its style. And so I, I, think, think, it's, I think it's more yeah. the course designer has to think about the looks of the course and the optics before mm-hmm. putting in these, op- these artificial things and mm-hmm. making the course all look cohesive and look together. Then I might not hate them as much as I thought I did. Gotcha. All right, last topic before we open it up to the calls. Should different plastics have different flight numbers in DIS? And also, should all flight numbers be made by the PDGA? This is a good one. And for those that are listening that might be newer to disc golf, flight numbers essentially is a way of giving you a rough estimate on the flight that you should see from that disc thrown properly and at the right speed. So this is where it gets obviously really tricky because it's, it's, I'm trying to think if it's really anything like, I mean, maybe bowling, bowling might have some statistics when, when you buy a bowling ball of like, this one's going to, cut more with the spin or I don't a lot of that I think depends on the wax on the lane for bowling but... yeah yeah but there are different like people will use a different ball to to throw for like a, a spare versus a ball to throw for a strike at the beginning so I think there are different characteristics in bowling balls I didn't know that but I'm trying to think of another sport where there's characteristics like this because you would never say in golf or tennis or hockey or anything like, oh, if you use this stick, if you use this racket, if you use this club, it's your the ball flight or the you know puck flight or whatever it is is going to look like this because so much of it is there's so, so many much other factors, so many other factors. So for for those that are listening, you've got basically most companies have four numbers when it comes to flight numbers. You've got your speed. You've got your, is it turn and then glide? It's speed, glide, and then the high speed turn and the low speed fade. Speed, glide, high speed turn, low speed fade. And again, these are very specific, very specific to how the disc is thrown. But this question's asking the first part, which I think will, let's actually tackle that second. Let's go with the PDGA first. Okay. Right at, as of right now, flight numbers are fictional. This, they're decided by the manufacturer. So you are the owner for Hunter Disc. I'm the owner of Dark Horse Disc. I come out with a disc that's the same exact disc as yours. We just somehow made exactly the same disc without knowing it. Our flight numbers could be completely different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a big part of it too is where you're located. So uh, mm. West Side Discs flight numbers are notoriously bad because they're testing them in like Sweden or somewhere overseas. Ah. So when it gets to here, 
they're, they fly nothing like that. Because Do you think they're nothing. actually testing them? I mean, like, I would who's hope so. testing them? I don't who's know. Who's testing them? That's the thing. No one knows. But one thing because I do know is, is if we you don't have a article. professional, if you don't have like a really good disc golfer throwing them, then that might how be true. Are you, how are you supposed to know how the disc is going to fly? Well, you can look at the rim shape and all of that. Yeah, yeah, I can see that for like the speed and stuff. Yeah, but I'm saying like testing wise, like to me, the easiest way of doing it is literally having a machine, and you can literally set it at different speeds different spin rates of how you know fast it comes out and you know, shoot that thing nose down flat and then base every disc off of that well yeah that's how it should be done but so uh-huh. what's going on right now because we, we i wrote a whole article on this for the blog on foundation's website and basically there's different marketing tactics within it right like being the first 100%. company to come out with a 14 speed disc when that 14 speed disc um is the exact same rim width as Discraft's Nuke, which is a 13 yep. speed. And or you the can look opposite. at yeah, having or a one speed. The hydrogen loft putter. It was advertised as like being a one speed putter. And they're like, what why are we throwing mean? two speed putters? <laughs> it basically means it's a lid. Like if you look at yeah. it, it's like the same type of statistics as the end of a birdie that's been on the market forever. It's just that now it's been remarketed. Um, but the biggest thing to me is every disc has to be sent to the PDGA anyways. Right, mm-hmm. they have to be sent in there for the mold to be approved. There's literally a guy at the PDGA that has every single mold that's ever been approved. So it comes into the PDGA. You just decide your testing process. Yeah, you know whether it is a human or a robot or it's just strictly you based go on robot. measurement. You got to go you robot, gotta, but you that's a lot more money. Dollars in the bank. You have millions of dollars in the bank. That's a, that is also true. Uh, so we go paying, robot. You're paying memberships to be a PDGA member. I would think most people would throw five or ten dollars to get a robot. We want robots. All right, so we get a robot. We want robots. So now every mold comes in. You measure the rim width for the speed, whatever you need to for the glide, and then you have the robot throw it, and you have like a visual thing behind him where you can, like, I'm thinking like one of those MythBusters boards. You know what I mean? Well, is it where it measures how far it changes off path to the right and then how far it yeah. comes back to the left and yeah. there's your there's your flight numbers and then you yeah. just assign that out no, there'd be no questions the about whole, it and the you whole just, issue you of just it, do it at you do it at a sea level yeah so the whole issue or it's not even have to be sea level if everything's tested in the same thing the biggest issue is you can't compare across manufacturers right now correct that that's is the biggest issue. issue so if it's all yeah. consistent it doesn't matter where it was tested you can at least well know. also it's not it's not consistent inside a manufacturer no that's the other thing well, so it, it all started from say, like they're this glide and then you pick a disc that says it's less glide and you're like, this disc is way glider than this. So disc. that's a whole different issue within disc golf. That's the inconsistencies <laughs> between runs because of just how long it takes the to first sit down, point. all that. Should different plastics have different flight numbers? I'm not even talking plastics. I'm saying Star Destroyers used to be notorious for this. Uh, not that, I mean, not it's not as widely popular as it used to be. So not that many people complain about it anymore, but it used to be like Avery Star Destroyers flew different than Paul Star Destroyers fly different than Ricky Star Destroyers. And then with, mm. within each of those runs, there's multiple different runs that all fly different. It's a mess. But it, flight numbers all started from a good point, a good, mm-hmm. a good heart, which was Innova created the flight number system so that you mm-hmm. could look at their discs and know, I have a rock. I want this disc to be more overstable. Oh, this Gator's a speed faster and it's going to be more overstable. Now I have a T-Bird. Oh, my word, this Thunderbird that just came out, it's like a faster T-Bird. 
that's mm-hmm. the whole point. Made a lot of sense. Back then, no one else was doing flight numbers, really. Discraft had a one flight number system that just told you if the disc was straight, finished it hard, or turned hard, basically was it. Uh, but then over time, everyone realized that what Innova's doing makes the most sense. And so everyone adapted it and brought it onto their own discs. But now Discraft was creating the flight numbers for the Discraft discs. Trilogy was creating the flight numbers for Trilogy disc. Prodigy for Prodigy and Innova for Innova. So none of them were creating the same flight numbers. Mm-hmm. They all kind of had a base model from Innova, but none of them were creating the exact same. So if flight numbers are going to stick around, which they're, they're not going anywhere because it, it makes the manufacturers too much money, it needs yeah. to come from the PDGA. But within different plastics, some companies are already doing this. I think, I think MVP is one of them that's already putting it's their already baseline, doing a little bit di- their baseline flight numbers will be different than their premium plastic. Interesting. I think... I think it's a good idea because the other thing you have to realize is flight numbers are 99% of the time marketed towards newer players trying to figure out Mm -hmm. what a disc is going to do. So they might not realize that a D-line buzz is going to fly different than a Z-buzz. The crazy thing to me, though, is yes, they are marketed that way, but they're not – they're marketed – they're marketed that way, but they don't like it's it's it, to me it seems like actually backwards because if I if I was a new player right and I didn't throw correctly, a buzz would be really stable. Yeah. When in fact, if you look at the numbers, a buzz isn't stable. It should be dead. Well, it is stable, but dead straight. It should be straight. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, overstable. Yeah. If I'm a new player, that thing's nose up. And it's just going left. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so overstable. So to me, it's kind of wild because whenever I'm playing with my local guys and they like, I tell them about the, uh, you know, I'll say, hey, you need to try this disc I have. They're like, oh, what are the flight numbers? And I'm like, stop talking about the flight numbers. <laughs> I'm wa- I've watched you throw. I know what you need. Pick this disc in your bag and it's perfect for you. So like that's where it's just like I think some people get super caught up on flight numbers and they're like, oh my god, this, this, this. When in fact it's like if you throw 50 miles per hour nose up and someone's throwing 60 miles per hour nose down, the flight numbers at that point are meaningless because the, that the same disc is going to fly completely different. From that from that perspective, yes, but where they would still mean something is no matter how you're throwing a Raptor is still more overstable than an Undertaker. Yes. So if I'm throwing nose up, yeah, my Undertaker, it might not have that negative one turn and one fade or whatever it may be, or I think it's two mm-hmm. fade, but I can still know, oh, this is a, the Undertaker. Like what's like the next stop? Negative Stats. one, two. Oh, the Raptor's the same first two numbers. Now it's a zero, three. So this I is know what, what I, it's going to do. This is what I don't understand, though, and maybe I'll never understand, is... Like, I just think there should be categories and leave it at that because to me, like, you should basically have, like, your 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 bomber disc. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to throw this a mile. For Discraft's lineup, like, flight numbers don't matter if you literally just say, like, distance driver straight. Like, this is your straight distance driver. And in that category, you would have... The crank, the nuke, the Zeus, and maybe that's it. I feel like I'm missing one more. 
I feel like there's one more in that category. But regardless, you have like those three. And then from those three, you're like, okay, these three are basically all the same disc. There's very, very limited, uh, very small differences between those three. All I need to do now is I need to feel them and see how they feel in my hand. And once I find the one that feels good, then I'm going to, I'm going to throw that one. Um, I think if they did categories like that, it would be interesting to see same thing. Like you could go mid range again, discraft lineup, mid range, understable. You would go soul meteor comet buzz SS. And it's like, okay, those are my four options. Mm. They're all going to basically fly very similar mm. to one another. Now it's just, let me feel which one feels better. And I'm going to use that one. Yeah. I think if they did that and just got rid of flight numbers completely, I think it would be so much, so much easier for the newer disc golfer. But like you said, they make so much money off of flight numbers and marketing stuff and doing all that, that I don't think we'll ever see you get yeah. rid of it. I mean, what you just described is kind of uh, Discraft's original idea. Everything said like buzz, and then it said like super straight mid-range. And then at the bottom, it was a like 0.5. And so they just assigned it one number, which basically described the flight of it. And so a buzz and a wasp would be both like maybe a 0.5 and a 1. So you could see, oh, wow, they're really close to each other. And it just said mid-range on it. So it just gave it one number so that you just saw kind of what it was going to do but it basically you could tell the meteor and the buzz ss would have both had a negative 0.5 so they would have both been the same disc and they both would have said mid-range which is basically what you just described and so you would just looked at it and been like oh well i like to feel the meteor a little bit more than the buzz ss i'm gonna try that knowing mm -hmm. in your head they're gonna fly the same but yeah because i mean another great example of why they're never getting rid of flight numbers was the river back in the day and it's still a little bit like this but when the river first came out it had like a six glide or something like that that we'd never seen it before. So I vividly remember me and my brother freaking out because we were newer players, right? Yeah. We see the six glide and we're like, this thing's gonna stay in the air forever. We have to get yeah. this disc. And yeah. what was smart about it was Latitude made a super beginner friendly disc and then assigned that number to it. So the hype was real because like, it, mm -hmm. all it was was it was a flippy fairway so when a beginner like us threw it, yeah, it felt like that disc had way more glide than forever. Through. Yeah, because you weren't throwing you weren't throwing the right disc. Yeah, because we were throwing mm -hmm. I don't even know what we were throwing. I think my brother was throwing a DX Banshee, which is a really overstable disc, and then just beating it yeah. up and hoping it flew good. So what they did is they just took a disc towards beginners, added a crazy high glide, so then when beginners threw it, we would see that glide because the flight mm -hmm. would just go so much longer. And then everyone on Reddit was just it was a never ending circle of you've got it was a to try hype the river. Train. Yeah, yeah. all it was, was they just put one more number on the glide, and then it was the first whatever glide disc that the market's ever seen. Mm -hmm. So that's stuff like that is I why think, I think we're never, we're never getting rid of flight numbers. I think, too, just to kind of wrap this up, I think something, too, that commentary kind of misses on a little bit is explaining how, yes, you do see the top guys throwing destroyers, throwing... DD3s, throwing forces, doing you, you know, throwing all these overstable discs. But these discs sometimes have been beaten in so much yeah. that they no longer are very overstable. And so when you watch them and they're like, oh my God, they're releasing it on Heiser and they're throwing 500 feet. 
The thing is, is when they, I got a disc right here. Boom. When they release on Heiser, okay, if this is a really overstable disc, this is actually, as soon as I release it on Heiser, it's actually going to start trying to get to the ground and st starting to get low and down. And if you're listening, I'm sorry, I'm doing this awesome demonstration. You're missing out. You should have been watching Just close live. your eyes. Well, unless you're driving, don't close your eyes. Yeah, if you're not driving, close, close your, your eyes. eyes and you can envision it. But if this disc now is either a flippy disc or I've beaten it in to where it's become flippy, now when I throw it on Heiser, it no longer wants to try to get to the ground. It actually is going to try to get to flat. But because I've thrown it with so much Heiser, it will never get to flat but it becomes a pushing hyzer. And that's the big difference between a high, there's a difference between a hyzer, a spike hyzer, and a pushing hyzer. A pushing hyzer is one where the disc is continuing to go forward and ever so slightly gets to little under flat. It fights the hyzer angle the whole way, but never comes and out. And it just keeps gliding, yeah. If you watch the best distance throwers, for the most part, um, that is the disc that that is when, when they're not trying to go max distance. That is the shot you're going to see because they can still throw that shot 500 feet. Mm. Um, and that's the pushing hyzer. And I think that's something that a lot of newer players, including myself, when I first came in, I was like, how the heck are these guys throwing these discs like that? And a lot of it has to do with finding the correct disc. Um, but if your arm speed isn't there, what you have to do is you have to drop down. So if your arm speed isn't there with the, the nuke, you got to go to the nuke SS. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's the same thing in golf. Uh, same thing in literally like Hunter, if me and you play tennis, your strings are going to be so loosey-goosey. It's going to be insane. You're going to have a trampoline on your tennis racket. And mine's going to be a brick. <laughs> and that's just because I can hit the ball harder than you, man. And I mean, that's it is, fair. it is what it is. It's like, it's like you using a wooden bat and I'm using a, a metal bat. And we're both hitting home runs. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we were having a little stream issues. Hopefully it, uh, hopefully it uh, comes through. I think we're through. good. All right. I think everyone's good. All right. Sweet. Can we do, uh, let's do some let's, calls. Let's get huh? some call-ins going. Let's get some call-ins right, going gonna... here. My internet, I think, just completely dropped out for a second, but we're back. We're back, and we're cooking. So they might have missed all my fantastic analogies. That they didn't miss loves. all of it. They didn't. They they missed you roasting me, but I think that was in my favor. So I think we're okay. Okay, fair enough. All right, all right. let's get these call-ins. We got we got some roll. people in the green room, yeah. so we're ready to go. Let's try let's, let's try mango. Reb said to try mango. This is this is going about as good as we could have ever predicted. You know, eventually we'll figure out this call-in number. The call-in number, the call-in number is the way to go. You just gotta be up here. That's the way to go. You gotta be up here. Well, you know, give me some time, man. We're like takes two a, weeks takes away. Takes a while. All right, let's try. Takes, takes a while. Let's try Mango. All right, Mango, you're live. Debate night with Brody and Hunter. Can you hear us? Can we hear you? Let's he see. He unmuted himself. That's a good sign. Are you alive? Are you there? Hey, can you guys hear oh. me? Oh, oh, we got him. First caller. There it is. All right. This what what crazy. topic do you have for us? So the topic I have generally, like you were on the forcing play by artificially altering the course and the rules and all of that by the two meter rule and the mozzarella sticks and the mandos. And one thing that we as viewers see all the time in all of the broadcast 
is like, okay, so you got this hole. It's the same hole as last year, but this year we raced the basket to mm. make putts more punishing. It, that also feels like it's it it just feels like it's artificially forcing a play that wasn't there. You also have the poor man's OB and the hazard, and you have the drop zones. And for us that are not professionals, they need to be PGGA approved in PGGA sanctioned events. So drop zones. So so all of our courses are forcing hazard now because we are not playing pro-level courses, and it feels like a lot of tournament designers for pro-level play are just increasing the difficulty of the hole by forcing you to get in the circle when you want to make the putt because they raised the basket. Interesting. Now, Brody, you're you're a pretty big fan of raised baskets, correct? I'm a, I'm a massive fan of raised baskets. I've, I've wanted to do a raised basket challenge for so long. Um, and here, here's why I'll say I'm a big fan of them is simply because right now there's a situation where putting is too easy. Putting, and what I mean by that is not necessarily like 40 feet, 45, 50 feet, those putts are too easy. The area of where people don't even pay attention to whether or not someone's going to make a putt, I think is too far away from the basket. I would love to see where a 20-footer there is still some nerves, some pressure, some uh, where it's not where like everyone at the top is making it every single time. Um, and you kind of look to golf and equate that to golf. Golf is three feet. Like once you're inside of three feet, you should pretty much make that putt every single time. Once you're at that three foot mark, it gets iffy. And especially if you're starting to add in slope and the greens are fast. So to me, when you have that elevated basket, it not only now changes the putt that you practice and do over and over and over again, but it also makes it to where now if you airball your putt, it actually brings in the chance of a potential three putt. I mean, I get that, but like you saw last tournament, you or the tournament Kyle Klein won very, yep. very recently. Idlewild. Uh, Idlewild, yeah. Where he, uh, you have one of the first holes where you, where everyone is laying up. Yeah, no, no, where everyone's laying up because the basket's right down by the, um, by the, by the OB, by the lake, right? Are you talking about hole one or are you talking about hole two? Hole two. Hole two. Down, hole two. Hole two, yeah. Not the elevated basket, but yes, continue. Yeah, it's not elevated, but in terms of in terms of making a putt pressure making a putt difficult making players want to lay up mm -hmm. instead of actually going for the putt and having the risk reward mm -hmm. having the ob at the bottom of a slope 10 feet from the basket is a punishing pressure putt but yes but elevating the basket and removing the ob doesn't create pressure doesn't create the 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 risk reward play so race basket just feels like you're adding artificial pressure to talk about but it doesn't really really like a 20 footer, most people are sinking 20 footers at, at a pretty decent rate, especially at, at the pro level. Oh, no, for sure. No, I don't think, I don't think raising the basket uh, solves the 20 footer rule. Um, I think right now, if you're a top disc golf player, you're making pretty much every putt. If it's, if it's a basic putt, meaning no trees in the way, uh, you're not having to straddle if you don't like to straddle. Um, if you just have a basic putt, you're going to see the top players make almost every putt inside of 35 feet. 
So the question is, do course designs need to go route to where there are very few times that you have a basic putt? That kind of gets a little bit difficult with some courses. And that's where I think the uh, raised basket, because if you look at the raised basket on hole one at that same tournament, Idlewild, or even hole number four at Idlewild, um, those are both raised baskets. And based because there is water or there's a hill uh, next to those baskets as well, it almost forces players to make that decision when they get to probably the 30 foot mark, the 30, 35 foot mark. Now they're thinking about, do I need to lay up or should I go for it? Where if it wasn't raised the 30, 35 foot mark, the uh, most top players are running that every time. So I don't think it solves the problem completely. Um, but I also, the way that the disc golf pro tour does it as well. Uh, I don't think it's, terribly gaudy i don't think it looks bad i don't think it looks gimmicky with like the the nice kind of uh raised baskets that they have i think it looks weird if you if you simply just have a pole that's like six feet tall and then a basket i think that looks weird but then building out that structure around i think it looks fine yeah i was was gonna pop in too i think that the raised baskets you've experienced, Brody, are a lot different than the raised baskets we, Correct. most of the viewers, experience. So when you talk raised baskets and you like it, I think that the height that the Pro Tour goes to um, and the way they raise the basket, I, I personally like as well because it's enough to add that secondary you know, thought process, but it's not so drastic that when you're five feet away, you can't tap out because I've literally played some holes where you're right under the basket and you're looking up at it like, what the heck is going on here? So I think there's there's definitely a balance. The Pro Tour seems to have found a nice balance, but um, when it goes to being artificial and gimmicky, I think if you push it too far, it definitely reaches that level. When, when you know, I can't exactly even reach into the basket to get my disc out, that's too far. Yeah, so I think the Pro Tour's height right now is perfect because pretty much everyone can go up and reach it. The baskets that you're talking about, um, that's where I think you need to have some sort of like tier system or something to where if you end up missing a putt, it like drops down into where you can actually like just dunk it versus like you said, you're underneath the basket and it's a super awkward putt from five feet. So if you had like a tier system or you had something where there's like a platform up there to where uh, I think Belton actually had a couple holes like this that worked really well. Um, but all in all, I see what you're saying, Mango. Um, I think if done correctly and done properly, I don't think it, I don't think it looks bad. And I think it makes it more, I think makes disc golf more difficult, which ultimately is probably what the fans want to see. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, another thing, and this could also be a topic that goes on forever, but right now you're looking at course designers are like, oh yeah, we merged hole 13 and 14 to make a really long hole and it's mm-hmm. like it, 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 it doesn't add it adds difficulty because you need to grow further but it doesn't make like all of us sitting in the audience like okay yeah we, we all throw 450 internet distance don't worry about it well but, but i would almost argue that it doesn't necessarily make it harder sometimes because if you make a hole to the point of where um i don't know if you watched uh deglo but hole 15 at Deglo is a perfect example of what you're talking about right now. 
they combined hole 15 and 14 to make a really long par four. And hole 14 originally was a little dinky hyzer par three that you could get birdie, but you could also get par. To get bogey on that hole is nearly impossible. But then hole uh, hole 15, the original hole 15 was a par four that you could get a three or four or five or a six. So that was like one of the best holes on the course, in my opinion, because of the score separation. When they combined those two holes, yes. Did it make it harder in the sense of like, um, to for each person it made it harder? Yes, but like, I don't know how Paul birdied that hole every single day, but that hole wasn't really birdied that much. And there weren't that many high numbers on that hole either because they took out the bogey, uh, they took out the OB. So what to me, what they ended up doing by making the hole longer is they ba- basically made it to where there was going to be less birdies and less uh, scores over par. And so what you end up doing is you just end up making it to where everyone's kind of smack dab in the middle, which is I don't think what you want to see. I think you want to see people that play the hole properly and play the hole well get birdies. People that play the hole average get pars. People Or not average, but well get pars. And people that play the hole poorly get bogeys or plus. So I'm with you on that. I'm with you on, hey, we need to make our course harder. What should we do? Let's just make it longer. Yeah, and uh, again, now we're wrapping back to like, okay, so if we give everyone unlimited airspace to pull all the distance that a pro uh, disc golfer can pull, then then you're going to be looking at at just like using all that airspace and then you've got the two meter rule coming back into play should they be punished for a tree and then you're looking at all these artificial rules coming back one again once again and it feels really nice just to like watch the back end of the tour where it's like okay it's wooded golf it's tight lines like watching watching Mm -hmm. hanham's ace uh was was something ridiculous uh but i and i hope i I hope we have a discussion about wooded golf versus uh versus golf course golf every single debate night but i'm not going to be the one pulling you there i'm just going to let more people get the option to speak hey we appreciate that mango good topics yeah thanks, thanks. so much for tuning in we'll uh, talk to you again later all right we got there some was more people. someone yeah there was someone chatting up they had a decent sized bark it sounded like in the in the uh in the chat but i don't, I don't think they're actually going to come on here please do uh we we want they won't they we want won't. spicy takes um, it looks like we got a whole bunch of people waiting to get in. I'm going to go ahead and just grab another one. We're going to bring Jake DGF in here. Jake, how's it going? You're live Hello. on debate night with Brody and Hunter. What, uh, what topic do you want to bring up? Give me one second just to turn off the other stream. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little, yeah. a little delayed. <laughs> okay. So I have a few topics. I'll only pick one just because I'm not sure if you guys have gone over them yet. So please just let me know. Um, so I did want to first talk about the whole, like, kind of mantra that goes around, especially, like, in amateur disc golf of, uh, drive for show, putt for dough. I don't think that's actually the case. I think it's the opposite. I think driving is way more important in disc golf, and I would like to discuss that. Yeah, with how easy putting is, it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what, that's the, that's the whole thing I was making, is, right, kind of what we were, what you guys were talking about earlier, is how putting in golf is a lot harder than disc golf, right? I think also uh, driving, also driving in golf is a lot harder than disc golf. I, too, every, yeah. every, everything in golf is harder than disc golf. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's, you know, there's, there's literally not an L there's nothing that you can tell me that is easier in golf than disc golf. There isn't. 
And so I think that is the, that I, I, that at the end of the day is one of the reasons why I think more OB should be implemented. And obviously it's a different game and, um, and such, but I think because, because putting is easier, because driving is easier, I think you can set up courses in a way that make it to where players that are playing well will always kind of rise to the top, if that makes sense. I will say no, does, yeah. the drive for show, putt for dough thing, I think is true for lower level amateurs. When you're just getting into the sport, you're going to oh. win a lot more tournaments on the amateur level if you're a really good putter. Driving, I don't think, starts to matter until you're a decent putter. Um, and so as you get farther up, when you're a pro, yeah, if you can't throw 450, it doesn't matter if you're banging every 30-foot putt because you're never going to get there for birdie. But right. when you're on the lower level of the sport, I mean... Every much, hole's birdie ball. Yeah, pretty much any win I've ever had was just because I had a good putting day, not because my drives were on. And and I think you see a lot more people, too, at the amateur level that just really struggle with putting. Like, yeah. if you three-putt, I can almost count the number of times I've three-putted on tour. And I wouldn't even consider myself a good putter um, compared to some of the top guys. But if you go to any sort of C-tier, B-tier event and you watch someone's round, you're probably going to see some three-putts, which would be, you know very very rare on on the pro tour that's definitely interesting um how i've kind of looked at it is like there's a lot more that can go wrong off the tee you can get a mm -hmm. lot more strokes off the tee rather than on the green like the worst that can happen usually on the green is that you three putt but I think off it, the tee, you can go a b right well i think it also kind of it's 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 a different skill thing right like like hunter was saying if you're on the pro tour talking about what's more important that's gonna be completely different than your if you're an ma3 player mm. and i think i think it's the same thing as if you're an ma3 player and an ma1 player those things are completely different because what you're saying is like you know there's a lot more things that can go wrong off the tee but as your skill level goes up and up and up like you're expected to hit that 20 foot gap that's 30 feet off the tee pad right like mm. you're expected to be able to do all these things we're at the lower levels, maybe not so much. No, I definitely see what you're saying. So then, um, how exactly do we make, like, holes on the Pro Tour? Like, how do we make them, like, as you were saying, like, kind of hard to the point, but still fair? Because what I hate sure. are, like, hard holes that are, like... Yeah. Um, like dice rolling like there's a hole in my course where the gap there's t there's a bunch of trees tiny little gaps to the point where it's just not fair so you're just throwing and just hoping and praying it's not a fair gap well there's a reason why it's called the fair way right and i think it makes even more sense in disc golf than it does in golf calling it the fair way but to me if you're going to have a fair way and if we're talking about woods golf right now you got to have it to where if you hit the fairway if you hit in the gap, there shouldn't be other trees in the fairway that you need to miss. Right. Um, there you should there be should, rewarded for hitting yeah, the fairway. There, there's a hole very similar to probably one that you're talking about where it's a very tight gap. It's like 375 feet and it's a tunnel, basically a tunnel, no more than maybe 20 feet all the way down. And there's two random trees that are just sitting in the middle of the fairway about 150 feet off the, uh, the tee. And it's one of those things where you throw the perfect shot and it's like the nice hyzer flip and you're like, yes, yes, yes. And now you're just hoping 
it doesn't hit one of those two trees in the fairway. Um, I, I'm with you on that. I think, again, I'm going to look at what golf does. Golf basically makes it to where there's a fairway, there's a first cut, and a second cut. The fairway is going to give you the best lie. The first cut's going to be a little bit worse. And then the second cut, you're going to be in, tr- you're going to be in trouble to like be able to hit your next shot. So in disc golf, because they don't really have a way, especially if we're playing like, uh, especially if we're playing like in an open um, setting. So look at like preserve, mm-hmm. for example, right? It's very difficult to like have something in uh, to, to obstruct you throwing, right? Yeah. Um, in golf, all you need to do is make the grass one inch longer and now it's way harder to hit that ball than mm-hmm. it is in the fairway. If the grass is a foot longer where you're throwing your disc, it's not going to change much of anything. So I think that is where you have to use hazards and you have to use OB. And so I would go, if you're watching at home, I would go fairway and then outside, maybe like 30 feet on either side, hazard. And then anything outside of that is OB and it's stroke and distance. And now that's, that basically makes it to where good shots don't get penalized at all. Uh, bad shots get penalized and very bad shots get extremely penalized. And now all of a sudden you're going to see people that are throwing well, scoring well, people that aren't throwing well, not scoring well. That's what I would do. Hunter, do you have anything? Yeah, I think uh, kind of going on what you would, you're saying is one of my biggest pet peeves in disc golf right now is a lot of times good shots are punished just as much as mediocre shots. Um, yes. And so I think mm-hmm. good course design, a good shot will always be rewarded, and then a bad shot will always be punished. Maybe there's always going to be lucky breaks that change those things a little bit, but when out of your hand, you hit the line, you do exactly what you you asked it to do, there's not going to be some sneaky branch, sneaky root, sneaky tree that's going to kick you off the fairway. I think focusing on courses that do stuff like that to where it's a dedicated line, it allows, even if it's like a thousand foot par five, it allows if you're throwing in the fairway, you're going to be able to get there and do what you want. And then if you mess up, you're going to struggle. That to me creates really good score separation to where you can start seeing those holes that provide everywhere from a two to a five. So when we're coming down the stretch and it's hole 16 and there's a two stroke lead, it doesn't feel like it's over anymore. Now it feels like, hey, yes. All that, like if if Ricky messes this up, if he pulls it a little bit, it, it the game's back on. Whereas a lot of times in disc golf right now, it's like if you have a three-stroke lead with two to play, there's almost nothing. If you're a top player in the world, there's almost nothing you that can just happen. Far out. Yeah, that very makes few, you lose very it. few core setups. Very few core setups do they uh, do they make it to where something crazy can happen. And, and to and to button this one up, we've all played holes where like the desired shot is the skip shot, right? You throw it. 300 feet and you're trying to get it to land on a little bit of a hyzer so it skips to the basket for whatever reason mm-hmm. if you know that is how the hole is set up bad design in my opinion is to not have that area that 50 feet 100 feet whatever it is that area where everyone's trying to throw and skip to not have that surface be the same because the goal should be to get your disc to land there with the correct angle the goal should not be to get your disc to land there and then cross your fingers that it doesn't hit a rock and it doesn't hit a root. So that I think is, is kind of one of the ways of 
eliminating that luck factor because the skill is to get your disc to the spot. The skill is to get the disc to the spot with the right speed and the skill is to get the disc to the spot with the correct angle. Now you're just adding in a luck factor when you have obstacles and stuff that it's just hit or miss whether or not you're going to hit it. That's, yeah. that's what I'll say with that. And I'll add on one last thing before I finish up. So like adding on to that, it's like, I don't to, to make the whole fair. I hate like when, you know, it, it's right. Some courses need to be made harder because they're too outdated, but I don't like mm -hmm. when course designers make artificial OB that doesn't really make any sense. Like, for example, there are a few holes um, at like a local B tier where like there are just these random rivers, like tiny little rivers throughout the hole. And it was just basically luck whether you landed there or not. Yeah, right? those are bad. Yeah, so it should be a defined fairway. I mean, and if all... you're going to add OB, it should be off the it should be off that fairway. I mean, all for the most part, all OB is is pr for, for the most part artificial. Yeah. Um, but yes, I mean the the way the way that most courses are probably going to be set up is where it's like off the property, right? That that's the whole reason why it's called out of bounds is because mm -hmm. in golf they literally had like this is our property. If you hit the ball out of our property, we can't allow you to hit from there. So that's out of bounds. That's that's how it came about. And so, um, but I think in golf you do you are seeing not all OB on the property line. Right, they do push OB in in a lot of areas, um, and so I think, especially in go in disc golf, you're gonna have to do that because, like we just said earlier, it's way easier to throw a disc and get it to go where you want than it is to hit a golf ball. And so, yeah, we can't be having the same air, like the same. Uh, and this is mostly talking about open courses. You don't want to have an open course where it's like, hey, if you land anywhere inside this hundred, you know, hundred yards or whatever it may be, you're safe. I think that's where it's like you got to tighten it in. And a perfect example: hole 18 at the Fort at Worlds, right? Yeah. How exciting was that hole? And that was all artificial OB. That was all calculated of, hey, we want this thing to get tight, and we want it to turn, and then we will open it up around the green. That was that is what a well-designed hole looks like, and it created the most drama in disc golf in probably the last ten years. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that hole is a perfect example of where. I, I guess my definition of artificial OB shouldn't be just you know, just OB. I think artificial OB, how I'm using it, is like unfair gotcha OB. Yes, where it's just yeah. It's like, haha, you landed one inch too short, gotcha, even though you threw a good shot. Well, I think that's, that's, just, yes. that's just back to good course design versus bad course design. Yes. A good course Correct. designer is going to leave those random trees that you throw a good shot and it slaps you down, or a bad course designer is going to do that, and a bad course designer is going to put OB that is just unlucky if you landed it or not. A good course designer is going to think through and be intentional with where the OB is, what yeah. trees they're leaving, what trees they're taking out, and that's going to result all around Every, I think it, it can all be beneficial for the sport um regardless of artificial ob or natural ob every every pro level course should have some sort of artificial ob on it because mm -hmm. with with the land and the stuff that we're able to have currently there just isn't there isn't a course that i've seen on tour where you weren't able to have artificial ob so i think the the pro tour is getting a lot better at setting up courses too 
Um, and so I think you'll just continue to kind of see that kind of, again, I don't think anyone has tr- problems with artificial OB when, like you said, it's not that gotcha. Like hole 17 at Idlewild, no one likes that hole because you're throwing a disc through a bunch of trees and there's OB randomly sp- you know, sprayed through the hole. So that hole does feel like, a, hey, I'm going to throw and then I'm just going to hope for the best. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think people at home really want to watch that kind of style. I, I but thank you, Jake, yeah, thank, thank you, you for coming on. Thank Appreciate you. it. Hunter, we can, we can maybe grab two more quick people. Yeah, there was one, uh, Jet, he actually changed his name in Discord, which is funny, to Jet 2-Meter Debate. Oh, I saw him in the chat. Jet 2-Meter Debate! He wants you to, gotta bring Jet in. He wants to talk about the 2-Meter. I saw him in the chat, so let's bring him on here and see, see what he's that about is to say. smart. If you're trying to catch our attention, changing your name in Discord, that is smart. All right, Jet, welcome to the show. Uh, I've heard that you have some things to say about the two-meter rule, and I am itching to hear your side of things. So go ahead and, and let us hear it. Uh, can you guys hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So um, I, I'm going to play devil's advocate really, really hard for the two-meter rule. Or Where just are you the... from? I'm from South Dakota. We keep forgetting to ask people where they're from. Yeah, we need we need to be doing that. Yeah, we need to ask. Okay, South Dakota. Okay. And I would. I, I, I thought you were gonna say California there for a second. No, no, no. But I do also want to say I think we should do this from a frame of like a professional pro tour level, mm-hmm. because the courses I'm playing where there are a lot of bad course designs, I think is irrelevant when talking about the courses you're playing, where you're playing elite pro level courses that should mm-hmm. be maintained and designed properly. Um. So I think. I, I think I'm, an, I'm really against the two-meter rule a while ago, and you were just talking about it, and I was thinking about it, where I think Hunter even said something like, me and you can both show, throw a really good shot, and one of us will get stuck in the tree, and one of us won't. And, it's, and I think Hunter used the word, the same shot, which in reality, it's not the same shot, much Correct. like if you threw it into a tree, and Hunter threw it one inch to the left, and he kicked straight left into the OB, whereas you kicked right and fell straight down when you used to be in bounds. Like, mm-hmm. the shot was just inch different, but it, um, one was a, a quote-unquote okay shot, and one was a bad shot. They weren't the exact same shot. Well, I don't know, I don't know if, you, if you could consider, because your scenario right there that you just said, where if you have one disc hit an inch, to one side of a tree versus the other, one drops and one goes to the left. If that tree was off the target line, right? Like you shanked your shot, then it is what it is. Like you threw a bad shot and one person threw a bad shot and got a bad result. One person threw a bad shot and got lucky. The problem with that is when that tree is in the middle of the fairway, like 300 feet down the fairway. Both people in that scenario threw a good shot because they hit the fairway, right? And then one got extremely unlucky and, uh, and one got lucky. So that's where in the first scenario that I gave you, both threw, people, both threw bad shots. One deserved what they got. The other one got lucky. This scenario, one person got lucky and one person got unlucky. I think it's the same probably thing with the two-meter rule of where you're going to have situations where the correct shot is to throw a big hyzer into a tree and hopefully it plinkos down. And if two people did that, 
and one people one person just gets stuck up there, that's unlucky. And then there's gonna be other scenarios where you shank your shot into a tree and one person gets stuck up there and one person doesn't. And in that scenario, you have someone getting lucky and the other person, I wouldn't consider it unlucky that stayed up there, you shanked your shot. So that's why I just don't like the rule in general because I don't know, man. It's just like, I don't like it when you're adding in luck factor. That's what I don't like. Well, I, I like taking the luck factor as much out of disc golf as possible. This so was I, also I, this was also just mentioned in the comments, but I think it's a great point. So I'm now going to steal it as my own. Sorry, absolutely. That's sorry, what we do here. fifty stitches steal. Um, he said. So imagine we both threw the actually the exact same shot, right? But during mine, it's windy. So mine, the branches ah. are moving. I hit the tree. It should stick in the tree. The and, wind shakes it, just, falls down. Brody's ah. hits the tree. It's not it's windy. Point. Sticks in the tree. We threw the same shot. We hit the same branch. Now the wind made mine fall down, made his stay up. There's so much, I think, when you add a tree in that it just it just falls to luck. Like whether or not a disc falls out of a tree. We've all played courses where we've hit the same tree over and over, and sometimes they fall, sometimes they don't. I don't like the idea of whether or not it fell out of the tree, which is completely out of my control, being what, what penalizes me or not. Jet, okay. yeah, question, question for you. Should disc, golf, should disc golf adopt the golf rule in this scenario and say, hey, your, your disc got stuck in the tree? You have two options. You play it as an unplayable and you take a stroke or you go up in the tree and you throw it from where your disc is. <laughs> um, you Tell know, me that, that's not electric. Seeing people climb a tree you, I, I could and see throw Matt it Bell, from a tree. I could see Matt Bell scaling, scaling that tree yes. and throwing from the top of it. But I also, yes. I, I do have a few questions for you. You mentioned um, yeah. the throw the hyzer into the tree, one falls down, one's essentially parked, and one doesn't, and they're stuck in the tree, and they're penalized for it. Mm -hmm. would, would you say that that's probably bad course design? If oh, yes. Top, yeah. So let's just say, because the one um, course on tour where this is relevant is De La Viega. Yep. And I think Hunter and um, on Griplock, they talk about, um, how just outdated De La is for many reasons, let alone just a two-meter rule. Even if you take out the two-meter rule on that course, it's still outdated and it probably shouldn't be on the Pro Tour. Um, but question for you, when you're playing your practice rounds on these manufactured, um, really nice, uh, clean course, how many times during a practice round are you actually getting stuck in a tree? That's a good question. <laughs> um, I don't know if a disc of mine has gotten stuck in tournaments, but I will say it's probably, I probably have gotten maybe three to five, three to five stuck in a tree throughout my, all my practice rounds and all my practice shots, I would say throughout the, the, the season so far. And this is this year, correct? Correct. Yeah. So you throw, and I know obviously some practice rounds are different. Sometimes you only throw one. Sometimes you might throw four or five. No, I, I, throw, I, I throw a lot of shots okay. up until the, the, finals, the so, final round. So even better, you throw a ton of shots on every hole, and you play, what, four or five practice rounds? Mm, uh, yeah, probably four, about Before four on average. Right, mm -hmm. so it's right around there. So you're throwing uh, hundreds and hundreds of shots, mm -hmm. and you're not getting stuck in a tree. Mm -hmm. Is that probably safe to say because you're you're at least attempting the line that the hole is asking for and you're executing it at a high level? 
Yeah, no, I, I don't think that's the argument. I think the, I think my argument against the two meter rule isn't so much that it's a rarity or um, that it, it only affects bad shots. I think that's that is my argument of where right now you have a situation where two people throw bad shots and one person can get double penalized. That's that's what I don't like. So what if, what if we raise? It, because the two meter rule is actually pretty low. I mean, like Six a disc, feet. right? A disc could be small. Like you could be looking at your disc eye to eye, and it'd be two meter rule. Like you're taller yeah, than I'm a the beast. two meter rule. Yeah, I'm a beast. Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so what if we raised it to like three meters, which is almost ten feet? Whereas, like, you're probably not you trying still... to throw it that high. No, no one, no one is. Tr- that's the thing. When your disc gets stuck in a tree, you weren't trying to to. And this is again talking about courses that you're not throwing, you know, these plinko shots, right? Where you're just chucking into trees and hoping for the best. When your disc gets stuck in the tree, that you you threw a bad shot. That that is not my argument. You threw a bad shot. No one's trying to throw that. Um, so whether you threw it high to the left to the right, you threw a bad shot. My argument is, two people could throw bad shots in in the scenario of hitting the tree. And one person gets penalized and one person doesn't. It's similar to OB, for example. If I throw one foot OB and you throw 450 feet OB, we both are penalized the same. We both threw bad shots and we both are penalized the same. I think that is where it is, is where someone, someone in that scenario is getting double penalized and someone's only getting somewhat penalized by so- hitting a tree. So is it any different than, say, if we both airball a putt by 30 feet and yours catches a rock and rolls down the hill into the water, whereas mine just decides to sit there? Is it any different? Like, No, I don't think it's any different, actually. I think, I think trying, to minimize, uh, trying to minimize that, but I, I would say... That's I think, a good, I that's think a the good difference. I think the difference is... Yeah, Hunter, come in and save me. Well, I'm going to say, I think the difference in that scenario is they're both obviously basically resulting in the same thing. We both threw the same shot, but one's controllable. One's the TD's decision, and one's just bad luck. So I think why should uh, we have the TD decision be the one penalizing us when so, the other... So, it's, so yeah, in this scenario, it would almost be like Jet. It would almost be like the TD being like, hey, we are going to put rollaway ramps in for today's tournament. And what that basically means, since no one has ever heard the term roll away ramps, if you miss a putt and your putt hits this ramp, it will roll every time. To me, that's you're now adding more luck. Right. More and like I, bad luck. We should, and I think we should I be think removing if, luck. We should be getting yeah, luck taking, out of it as much as possible. I, I also I would do want to say I think it is absurd that we have a rule that is only played in one state of the country. I think that's <laughs> they absurd. love it. They love it. When I played a tournament over there, they literally in all caps at the very end of the rule said, and we will be playing the two meter rule exclamation point smiley face. People, and I was like, that's, people fight hard like, for it. I was like, that's how you know that they're all about it because they know people hate it, but they love it. And I do want to say, I think that is absurd. Um, just for the simple fact that especially on the pro tour, like you should not go to one elite series event and play with different rules than the next, but Mm -hmm. that's beside the point. Um, But I know you talk a lot about score separation. Yes. Um, So you talked about how if I, we both throw bad shots. So it's clear. We both throw bad shots. 
you get stuck in the tree, but mine falls down. Mm-hmm. Is, but if none of us get pe- penalized worse than the other, granted it may be quote-unquote lucky, you probably shouldn't have thrown that bad shot in the first place. Yep. So at that point, we're just allowing for more score separation, or we're not allowing for more score separation by the fact that we both, through one of us, unfortunately got a little bit luckier than the other, and that's just, I mean, that's the way disc golf is, and so many things is it quote-unquote luck-based. Um, there's less score separation if we take, a, take away rules like that because I, I'm part of disc golf is being lucky. I mean, if if there were... Yeah. If there was no luck, I, Paul McBeth might win every single week. That's just the reality uh, of the situation. I would disagree with that. But, um, no, there is... I mean, every sport, there's luck. Right. I mean, every every sport, there is some form of luck, but there's a reason why. There's a reason why, like slots isn't a sport that people watch. There's no as far as I'm concerned, there's no professional slots. There's no professional game of war, the card game. Uh, There's no professional crazy eights or these. and, And what I'm trying to get at is. These are all things where luck is bigger than skill. When, when luck becomes more important than the skill, it's not, it's not enjoyable as a fan to watch. And I think that's where, I mean, look at fighting, right? Some could say fighting, there's a lot of luck involved because if you get caught with one punch on the right spot, you can go down. And, and that's where they say, you know, everyone's got a fighter's chance. Everyone's got that one punch chance. To knock someone out like i technically have a chance of beating floyd mayweather right if i catch him with the right punch i could potentially beat floyd mayweather but the amount of skill involved in fighting versus the luck outweighs it drastically and i think that's where if you can take i don't think you want to i don't think you want to insert the luck that's what i think it is yeah. i think every sport Every sport has some luck already just in it with how it is. I don't think you want to do anything that inserts luck. And I think that's what the two-meter rule does is it's inserting luck. Because think about this, right? Me and you both throw a terrible shot into a tree, correct? Yep. Yours hits the tree and drops. Mine goes straight through and gives me a circle one putt. That's luck. And there's nothing the tournament the tournament t- director, there's nothing anyone in disc golf could do to take that away. That that it just it's going to happen. And so there's already luck implemented. Same thing like you said, two putts, same same exact putt. One decides the roll, one decides the not. I think when a TD inserts themselves to put in a rule that is going to make it to where now the luck is more involved, I think that's the problem. It's Hunter, like, do you have anything else to say it, on this one? Yeah, to expand on that, it's like the same thing we were just talking about, about like the artificial OB, where bad artificial OB is ones where it's like just kind of thrown in there where you might land in it, you might not, it's lucky. I think it's the same style thing here, where that's just bad course design. If you're throwing the two meter rule in, and forcing luck upon players when luck probably shouldn't be there because realistically the luck is do you stay in the tree or do you fall out 
Like, because you might punch through the tree, get to the basket, and I might hit up in the tree and stick there. So now imagine, like, if we're playing a two-meter rule, Brody hits the same tree, fights through all the branches, gets to the basket that's 60 feet away, and I stay up. Now I'm double penalized. Not only am I 60 feet farther back, but now I also have a stroke. That's bad luck, but now I'm penalized for my bad luck that I already had. And I think that's where people in the chat were kind of confusing it. We shouldn't eliminate all luck from disc golf, but we should eliminate forcing luck in disc golf. Well, you can't. You can't eliminate all luck. No, because rollaways are going to impossible. Happen. But we It'd shouldn't be. be we shouldn't force luck. luck. There's no way we. Sh Just like we shouldn't be adding like. I, I this legitimately happened a few years ago at a major, an AM major. I was playing, and there were tires in the middle of the fairway that was like the designated landing zone where they wanted you to land. Huh. And so if you landed in the tires, you had to do like a football run-up thing. That's just awful course design because if I land short of the tires, I have a great run-up. That's run kind of hilarious though. If I land in it, it's super gimmicky. It's forced luck, right? I have a, that type I have of stuff is just awful. Quick question, probably before I get off here because I know there's other people waiting. So um, I have, obviously we talked about bad shots. Um, but I think now, especially when you look at, and probably like hole nine at Idlewild, I think it's hole nine. Is that the one Chris Dickerson aced? Yes. Yes. So, yeah. The little, the, the, little turnover, the like, turnover shot. Yep. 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 Yeah. The turnover shot, but you have Kevin Jones, Eagle McMahon throwing it 150 feet up in the air and they would love to get stuck in a tree. Absolutely love it because they're literally going to be right next to the basket, stuck in the tree, 15 feet up in the sky. Whereas Chris Dickerson is throwing this touchy shot through the mm -hmm. woods, through the fairway, and if he misses the if he misses the basket or the trees, he's fifty feet past the basket. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I, the two meters in effect, what's 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 the you're thinking those guys aren't throwing that grenade shot when the two meter rules in effect? Heck no, heck no. Well, I think this. I would. I, you're, I would te you're telling I, me Kevin Jones couldn't throw a touchy well, putter shot through the trees. Well, well, this is what I'll say. I think I actually messaged this to our group chat where I said, because we were all watching that. Um, Delaware, for whatever reason, we were not about Delaware. I watched like the last seven holes and that was pretty much it. But we were all watching Idlewild. I think, Hunter, I texted the chat that uh, Kevin was losing strokes by throwing so many grenades. Like there was, there were plenty of holes where he was throwing a grenade where I was like, what? Like why... Like his put his backhand putter game is so good. Like, why is he throwing a grenade here? Yeah. So, I think it comes and goes, man. Like in that scenario, I'm fine. I'm fine if I'm competing against someone one on one and they just want to keep tossing crazy grenades like that when it's not the best throw. I think that's fine. I think when you break a hole with a grenade or an over the top or something like that, that's where it gets a little bit dicey for me. But um, that's where the course but, uh, designer should just adjust the tee or put to where a, the trees yeah the put trees some are type closer. of mando in that you have to go under because a, a mando yeah. 25 feet in the air doesn't affect anyone's shot except for the up and over and it forces everyone to go down the middle i think that's I just, a better solution than a two meter rule i just jet this is what i'll say i never saw kevin throw a grenade during that tournament where i was like shoot i need to go and learn how to throw a grenade because he made that hole way easier like in my opinion he has an extremely good grenade. He's very accurate with it, but I don't think he threw it in a, there wasn't a moment that he threw it to where I was like, that is the best throw in that scenario. I, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I can, I can agree with that. But I think as time goes on, like it shouldn't be a thought where in practice rounds, 
players get to the tee, people like Eagle McMahon and Kevin Jones, like the first thing they do is look up in the sky to mm-hmm. see if they can just throw it over the trees. And even if even if you made a small tweak where you raised the meter, so it's maybe three or four, where if you're 10, 12 feet up in the air, stuck in the tree, like like you must have thrown a really bad shot, really, really bad shot, or you were trying to throw it that high. And like you, you're essentially kind of trying to break the hole if you will and then you didn't Mm -hmm. successfully break the hole so i should think you get punished for that if you're up you know 15 feet in the sky um but two meters i think is pretty low and i can't understand where if you both threw equally quote-unquote bad shots that Mm -hmm. one shouldn't get double stroked but i think that might it would it makes score separation um it would separate scores more whether that's good or bad uh that's up to you but um, I appreciate you guys having me on. I know there's yeah. people waiting. Yeah. So hey, thanks nice for changing you your name, dude. I think I think you're gonna be a trendsetter with the change <laughs> of your name. That was that was a baller move. I appreciate it, guys. Have yeah, a good thanks night. for coming on, brother. Well, sweet. I felt like that was a a pretty good back and forth. He did bring up a few good points, but he didn't sway me. Uh, I'm he still... almost got me. He almost got me with the two putts. Yeah, and you came in and saved me. Yeah, I I will I was, always be I was anti. stumped. <laughs> I was stumped. I was like, "Oh yeah, you're actually right." And then you came in and you're like, "Well, to be one's fair, one's a decision, one's not." Yeah, and I was like, "Oh my god, Hunter just destroyed me!" Wow, <laughs> debate night at at its full force right there. Um, I think that's a good stopping point, honestly. I mean, and I'm pretty happy with how these calls went. Yeah, I think like, it was. I think I it was very well. Some people brought some heat, which is nice. I mean, again, there's going to be a lot of keyboard warriors in the chat that are they can't stand up and get into the kitchen where the the fire is. You know, they just want to type behind their keyboard. Maybe they don't have a mic. Maybe they don't own an iPhone. I don't know. I don't know what the reasoning is, but uh, there will be more and more keyboard warriors, and you know what? That's fine. I'm just I'm just excited just... for the day that one of them actually calls. Oh, I cannot wait. That's just going to be fun. Licking, That's gonna I'll be, be fun. licking my chops. I'll be sitting back but here hey, with popcorn watching you two do your thing. <laughs> um, make sure you guys that are watching right now and listening, make sure you guys do go over to our new Twitter. It is at Debate Night Pod. Um, and then also make sure you guys check out us on Apple Podcasts. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts right now, drop us a rating, drop us a review. Oh, I didn't even read our review. I'll, save it. I'll save it to the end. Yeah, I, this one, this one is another one. Uh, well, not another one, but this is another time where if you're not driving, close your eyes real quick for me, okay? Everyone just close <laughs> your eyes and and visualize this. This comes from uh, the user understatement. He says, "This podcast is a true masterpiece. It is like watching a summer storm roll in from the comfort of my own front porch. There is some excitement." Noise and energy coming from Brody that is like flashes of lightning and rumbling thunder that pairs perfectly with the consistent, calming rainstorm in Hunter on the other side of the screen. I don't think I would want to be in the thick of the disc golf debates myself, but I'm happy watching from afar. This show is best served live, and it probably needs a different name. Now, I think the last part, first off, this guy... We might need to hire this guy to write for us. He's a poet. I mean, you didn't that, even know it. That just, that brought tears to my eye. Uh, but the last part, because I read this to Kelsey and she's like, different name? What the heck? And I was like, that's the only thing you pulled from this? <laughs> um, I think that's because we went live at like 12 o'clock. Yeah. 
debate middle of the day. Yeah, so they were like, what the heck? This is hopefully think, the new new night, Tuesday night. I, I don't know if it's late enough, though. Is 6 is six Eastern late enough? I still feel like people are trying to get off work. Well, this, normally, this normally would be later, but you wanted to grind out some Apex Legends. That is true. I'm thinking, like, potentially, like, um, I'm, I'm thinking maybe I stream early on Tuesdays, and then that way we can go, like, at 8 p.m. Eastern. Yeah. Tuesday night, debate night. I'm feeling that. And go go that way yeah so um we'll see we'll see but tuesday tuesday seems to be the home i like the tuesday i think it fits great in our lineup of podcasts and videos that we already got going on uh and i think that hopefully people who are listening live that also allows us to release it wednesday morning on the audio podcast platforms i think that that fits well into into everything else we have going on heck yeah no this one great this one great and uh Again, I just encourage you guys to watch live, jump into the live calls, and uh, let's debate, baby. Let's do it. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you all next week. Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys.